You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress with our hosts, Susan Simmons. Well, who are you? Motor Tom. <laughs> Is that our new name, Motor know. Tom? We need a good nickname for him, Becky. That's, That's true. It. We have our our other producer in studio today. Hello to the audience. Bashful is not a name I would ever associate with you. I was bashful when I was a kid. Well, you Surprise definitely came out of your shell. Stick a microphone in front of her face and she goes British or goofy or... I know. I know. I know. I don't even know I do until Joel's like, why are you British? I'm like, I don't know. I must have gotten nervous. And she's from Missouri. <laughs> she ain't even close to Britain. But anyway, we have a, a, an interesting guest with us today to talk about a topic near and dear to all of us. And um, can't believe we have the 21st anniversary. Yeah. Gosh, that really makes me feel old. But we have with us, still can't believe you have a lieutenant in front of your name, even if it is retired Lieutenant Rich Mack <laughs> back with the podcast. He was our, I think he was our second guest right wow. behind Lieutenant Colonel Grossman when we first started this. He's not a bad guy to follow. You're right. Uh, well, that depends. When I have to follow him on the stage, <laughs> it sucks. It absolutely sucks. <laughs> That's a hard one to follow. Um, but yeah, good guy. So, and you still haven't met him, have you, Rich? No, I have not. I know. We got to make that happen. Dave will never be the same. Dave Gross. <laughs> heard all about him and read all about him. But uh, not met him. Yeah, we'll, we will make that happen at some point, like I said. So, how are you up there in New York? I'm doing all right. And can, uh, you, can you believe it's been 21 years? Uh, you know, it's weird. It's like it went by so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't know, I guess I was just feel like the last 21 years have been very busy. <laughs> well, you kind of got married. You kind of had a kid. You kind of got promoted. You kind of got beat up. You yeah. kind of got hurt really bad in the process. <laughs> you kind of got your face smashed in and you kind of got your eye socket broken and it was a lot going on in 21 years yeah not to mention i've worked in some uh of the tougher neighborhoods in uh, new york city and probably the country mm -hmm. and uh i've been involved in everything over the years from uh before 9 11 i was there for the capture of the new york zodiac in east new york dealt with mm -hmm. cops shot and, uh you know uh, riots Occupy Wall Street, Hurricane Katrina, you know, it's um, the COVID stuff before even all this happens. Uh, and then your average, 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 everyday high crime in some of the busiest neighborhoods in the city. So you're telling uh, us you're a shit magnet <laughs> is what you're telling us. <laughs> Uh, I have been accused of that before. Uh, that's not the first time I've heard that. I'm so shocked. Really? Having known you 21 years, I'm so shocked. I would have never have expected that out of you, Rich. Yes. But he does know how Especially to have fun. 
Well, he is a little crazy. He does know how to have fun, whether he's in New York or whether he's in Arizona. <laughs> and he has a thing we have to tell the audience. He has a thing about in and out Burger. Yes, he does. Where they are. What are they doing in the kitchen, Rich? They're making magic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's even funnier when he says it when he's drunk in That's the back right. of Tom's car. <laughs> That was so funny. He tells my wife, he goes, do you know what they're doing in there? And we're like, what? He's like, making magic. <laughs> that was so funny. And you have to understand, Rich is like this, whether he's drunk or he's sober. I, I can't always tell. I mean, it, he's kind of just the same Yeah. before, during, and after. And we had to get him the In-N-Out burger hat. And we have pictures yeah. for anyone who would like them. Uh, we, we can... Uh... Avoid that or I'll figure out a way. I, I think that's what ought to be the caption for the podcast. Rich with his in and out hat. I'll take that over the one on the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, oh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that was kind of tough. You know, and, and you sending me that that night, I, you know, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in bed half asleep and I get this beep beep and I look at it's Rich and uh, hit the image and He's blood dripping down his face and somebody's escorting him. And I'm like, what the hell? And he was home by that point with his son. And uh, then he was all over Fox News. And I'm texting my son, Marshall, going, hey, turn it on. Rich is on. And he's like, oh, my God. What happened to him? Yeah, yeah it was crazy. Well, listen, if you can't be famous, be infamous. <laughs> and you happen to be both. I'm both. Yes. So, you know, you and I were talking the other day on the phone and you did an interview um, uh, for Fox National News. And I want to give you the opportunity here because on that one, I think there might have been a little misunderstanding of some sort about when you actually got involved for 9-11. And since this is our anniversary commemorative of all the heroes and the warriors and everybody from Gosh, that thing went on. It's that part of it seemed like it went on twenty years. Um, but I want you to be able to tell your story because you were not actually there day one, correct? That's correct. I was there uh, the second day. Okay, so, so where were uh, you when you found out about it? Well, I was actually sleeping, <laughs> and my stepfather at the time, because I did four to twelves, mm -hmm. and so by the time you get home, it's like. One o'clock in the morning, and ironically, I didn't have a car during that time. I was in between vehicles. So all I had was my motorcycle, which meant getting to work meant either a motorcycle ride of about 40 minutes or half hour or a train ride, which could take like an hour to an hour and a half one way, subway train. Now, I have to so ask, is that the infamous motorcycle that you had the whole conversation with? Sheriff Jones from Shelby County about. We, I hope we can get that story in because that's kind of a cool we'll, we'll story. Get, we definitely will at some point. It deserves some talent. <laughs> yes, it does. So uh, that day, actually, I was supposed to go down to the World Trade Center area because uh, I had to pick up the check for my new car that I just purchased, which I hadn't picked up yet, which was the Jeep Liberty. <laughs> the also infamous Jeep Liberty. <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, 
you know, some people knock the Jeep Liberties, but I can tell you that car did wonders for me all during 9-11 and Staten Island. It had been to Ground Zero, it had been to the Staten Island landfill, which which is a whole nother story that I think often gets overlooked with 9-11. And uh, so basically I was home and uh, I got a call from my stepfather who woke me up. So the plane hit the Twin Towers. And I was just like, I thought he, I didn't know where he was drunk or what. I was just like, I'm sleeping. You know, he goes, go back to bed. He goes, no, turn on the television, turn on the TV. And uh, I thought it was, it was a re, it was the plane going into the towers. I thought it was um, a repeat of it. It was actually the second plane hit the second tower. Wow. So from there, I said, oh, get dressed. Let's. Take a shower quick and get to work. Now, how far were you living from Ground Zero at that time? So from Ground Zero by train or motorcycle, mm -hmm. the only two transportation I had, I lived on an island, but either way, it would take about a half hour okay. to get there, whether I would hopped up, whether the train was right there and I was able to shoot down or take a motorcycle. On sidewalks, uh, I'm sure. Of course. Well, listen, in, I mean, um, when I got to work, my biggest scare was driving that motorcycle because it felt like people were going to stop for red lights. It was a war. Sure. And I really was worried that, you know, somebody was going to fly through a red light and I was going to get plowed. So sure. I actually stopped at almost every uh, intersection. And uh, I remember getting on the LIE and people were pulled over on the highway watching. Wow. Which was so crazy. Wow. And then uh, I made it to work. And uh, while I was changing, somebody said that the towers fell. I couldn't imagine what happened until you physically see it. Right. And then uh, what happens is they have something called citywide mobilization in the NYPD. Mm -hmm. And that means everybody, all hands. There's different levels of it, but the biggest one is what's called a citywide mobilization or a level four mobilization. And NYPD has 76 precincts and about 10 transit precincts and 10 housing precincts. And about so 38,000 NYPD or 41,000 at, at that like time? like 38 to 40,000. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Now it's a lot less. It's probably down to about 32,000. But, um, uh, and um, so uh, by the time I got upstairs, the towers had collapsed. And uh, basically, they had a citywide mobilization. They had called two or three even at that point. What that meant was from all those roughly 100 police commands, they sent eight police officers and one sergeant from every single one of those hundred police commands. So, and and then they called it a second time. So you're looking at at least two thousand cops mm -hmm. down at Ground Zero. Not to mention Port Authority, which was based out of the World Trade Center, and Jersey City, which is just over the other side. State Police, which is based out of Chavit Center. And, um, you know, all the courts were surround the World Trade Center, so court officers, a few other 
Building 7 was mostly federal, um, the CIA, the DEA, you know, uh, it was uh, off-limits building for most local law enforcement. And that was the one that collapsed later on in the day. Right. So uh, having 2,000 cops down at Ground Zero, um, they weren't going to send it. Was, uh, for several reasons. Number one, if another building collapses or another plane comes in, you've lost a good portion of your department. The other reason is, what if there's another attack somewhere in the Sure. And so uh, we were all on standby. I was on standby with the rest of 7-5 Precinct. One of them was uh, Kathy Vigiano, who mm-hmm. you saw on uh, Harris Faulkner with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, her husband, who was uh, ESU, which is NYPD SWAT, along with the 23 others perished after the towers collapsed. And actually, he lost his brother, firefighter brother as well. Uh, the Vigiano brothers both were killed uh, on 9 11. And she was with you? Yes. On everyone, else, everyone else was on standby in the priest. Did, how long was it before she realized she had lost so many people? Well, listen, there were crazy rumors going around sure. like when it happened. We had heard a lot more were killed than ended up being killed. Um, but uh, basically what happened was she kept calling her cell phone and an EMT answered Joe's cell and she at that time left the wow. precinct with a couple of other officers and went downtown. Wow. Can't imagine. Mm-mm. Can't imagine the chaos. I mean, you're not just dealing with thirty to uh, 38 to 40,000 police. You're dealing with civilian citizens, guests, visitors. Crazy, right. crazy stuff going on, and uh, and family. Yes, yeah. And how long did it take actually to shut the transit system down, everything down? So uh, we have what's called a citywide frequency, and uh, for big events, parade, usually parades type of thing, uh, all radios can usually go to what's called citywide one, two, or three. And that is for major events. So all the officers can kind of be on on the same frequency. So uh, basically what happened was uh, while you're sitting around in the precincts, all guys can do is turn on Citywide One and listen to the action. (laughs) And it was after the towers collapse, you're hearing cops calling for help. Uh, Moira Smith, who was a female police officer killed. Yep. Um, That's my biggest memory, was hearing her calling for help, and this was after the towers collapse. Yep. So she was, she lived for a while in an air pocket. And her husband was an officer. Yes. Her husband was an officer in the uh, 13th Police. You know, I don't know if I ever shared with you, but, you know, one of my trips up, I was actually in the pit with ESU when her body was discovered. And I was telling that story up in Colorado at the state FOP conference. And I noticed a young woman on the front row getting a little bit emotional. And on the break, uh, she came up and she was one of Moira's best friends growing up. And she just couldn't thank me enough for keeping her memory alive, talking about her because 
Her husband was NYPD, and she had a young daughter. I think was only about six years old when 9-11 happened. And I thought, you know, what a small world. And I know you had sent me that audio um, of dispatch trying to find help, help locate her when she was calling for help. Yeah. And that was, that was, uh, it was a training tape for me for our stress coaches and our peer support. And, and then it just got to where it was just too much to hear it over and over and over again. But I can't imagine the frustration of all of you, much less her husband. And they couldn't figure out where she was right. in the, in the rubble. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, that first day was then, um, you, you would ask, like, how quickly did they shut down the city? And uh, actually what happened was when the towers collapsed, uh, headquarters, uh, all of lower, lower Canal Street area, which is where police headquarters was, mm-hmm. all lost power and phone communications. Wow. Wow. So for months, so actually after they rebuilt the system, all of headquarters had to have completely new uh, phone numbers and system installed and uh what happened was our first deputy commissioner chief dunn got on the radio and the police radio and he just said deputy commissioner dunn is central this is over citywide he just said advise all units shut down the trains shut down the bridges nobody goes into manhattan everybody goes out wow and that's actually how the police department got word to shut down the city. Thank heavens the radios didn't go down. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are parts of Phoenix. They don't even have radio <laughs> communication on a good sunny day. Yeah. It's a miracle in the middle of something like that, that that didn't even happen. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that was, but in the end, that's how, you know, normally we have like a phone tree. The headquarters calls operations. Operations calls our eight patrol boroughs and housing and transit. Then they call the precincts. In this case, it had to be done all over the radio because we lost all phone communication in Lower Manhattan. But did so you have the other boroughs, Did you have trouble with people ahead. trying to key up on the radios? How do you get everybody to shut up and not? <laughs> um, yeah, was that many people? Listen, Susan, that's an ongoing problem for major events. Every year, when you have thousands of officers, uh, especially, like I said, for every parade, we use citywide one, two, or three. God. And what happens is you you, you kind of need everybody on the same frequency, but the problem is the issue of radio discipline. Right. Too many guys want to talk on the radio. I mean, you heard that during 9-11. You hear that often during major events where stuff goes wrong. Um, I still remember uh, when I was working, when the uh, West Side, um, the car, the guy in the U-Haul ran over the uh, people on the West Side Highway bike path many mm-hmm. years ago on yep. Halloween. Yep. Uh, the chief of special operations, who was my chief at the time, my the head of all units, he got on the radio and basically told everybody, stay off the radio, except for the officers on scene. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to know all kinds of ridiculous questions that can wait. <laughs> and when you have sure. 2,000 people and everyone's going, well, like in the, ho- in the 
masculine way. Well, what's the description of the suspects? What's this? What's that? You know, everyone's getting it. Just like you need, in those cases, the sergeant on scene should, should be the only one speaking. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you just, you get a lot of inexperience, anxiousness. Everyone wants to talk on the radio. And it just creates sheer chaos. And yeah. the issue is not a radio frequency issue. It's an officer discipline issue. Mm-hmm. Sure. No sure. one should be talking except for really for dispatch and the highest ranking guy actually on scene. But uh, so that's how they shut down the bridges, was Chief Dunn. Um, he was actually with, uh, at the time, Inspector Terry Tobin, who is now one of the highest ranking chiefs in the NYPD. And Terry Tobin was at the time and still is a member of Papa. Really? Yes. And Terry was with him and she got buried in the rubble. And she, when the towers collapsed, she was in it. And um, she grabbed the woman's arm and said, don't worry, things will be okay. And when she was eventually able to break free, it was just a woman's arm. Wow. And uh, Let me say this, Rich, <laughs> uh, for the audience that doesn't know. PAPA is the organization, it's a police organization providing peer assistance. That's who brought all of our teams in. Okay. They used to be called MAP, MAP Members Assistance Program, right? Yeah. And so that was the organization. Bill Genet was head of it at the time, a wonderful man, somebody I'm crazy about him and his wife and still communicate with. And so they were all NYPD peer support trained people with licensed psychologists. I don't know if you had just licensed counselors. I knew I know we met all the psychologists, but that's the group that ran this whole peer support part of the. And that's how we met. Yes, it is. Yes, lucky me. One of the best days of my life when I met this man. And uh, he has brought a lot of joy and laughter to me, I have to tell you. I don't know, Rich, that inflection that she was just saying that with is kind of like, bless your heart. You know, you just never know. I've got I've gotten that many times. In fact, that's why I learned that sometimes and she'll say to me, oh, bless your heart. And I have to go to myself like, <laughs> Rich knows I love him, and I and I want you to see. Uh, we're we're talking to Rich on Zoom, so he can see me. But I'm wearing my N nine eleven pin mm-hmm. that you guys gave me. I wear it every September for the whole month. It's just to make sure we're all remembering and we don't forget what happened on that day. And I guess a little bit further in the interview, we'll talk more about Papa. Yes, guess we should kind of get through. The beginning first. Yes. So um, with everything shut down, they didn't want any more people in the city. We had about, from our precinct alone, about, I'd say, three van loads of cops and supervisors went down. And out of those three van loads, there was about four guys missing. I mean, uh, at the time, plus the ESU guys, because the ESU guys, I think Truck 7, were actually attached to our building. And a lot of them were from the 7-5 as officers and then went on to ESU, which is, like I said, our SWAT team. So uh, throughout that first day, people were moving. Then um, once she, the commissioner, deputy commissioner Dunn went on the radio, a call was made out to the 7th Precinct. There are two highways that come through our precinct. The Belt Parkway, which is the southern part of the borders, the water, 
of uh, South Brooklyn and by JFK and all the way into Coney Island. And then there, there was what's called, at the time, the Interborough Parkway, which ends at Eastern North. And the big concern was uh, people are going to try to get to the city, you know, for whatever reason. So we had to shut down those highways at our precinct, which was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was like they threw me on the second road over from this Interborough Parkway. We had other guys shut down the, the belt. And my job was just to make every car that wanted to try and get around to figure out a way to go into the city, tell them no. And I was the second car to do so. Second street. So every single vehicle for 10 hours. I had to stand out there. My radio died, and I was still doing it. Wow. And uh, uh, I was dealing with angry people and um, people cursing me out, you know, cursing out the police department. At this point, I'm thinking thousands more officers are dead than you know, the amount that worked. And people in general, oh, thousands more. You just didn't know. Sure. And uh, after literally about being on that post for 10 hours with a dead radio, someone finally came and found me and said, okay, the highways are now all clear. You can come back to the precinct. And we went back to the precinct. And then I remember there was someone decided to start looting on uh, another part of the precinct. And they went to loot the, um, some of the Middle Eastern jewelers who had, had nothing to do with anything other than being Middle Eastern and trying to have a legitimate business. Wow. And so we had to go over there, you know, uh, exercise a little authority to stop people from looting. Take, you know, like that's the last thing anyone wanted to deal with. Right. Sure. And uh, the hardest part was actually on that foot post, by myself, with your thoughts, not knowing what's going on, thinking it's worse off. I mean, it's as bad as could be. But and you had been on with NYPD how long at that point? I got on in 95, so I had six years on. So you had a lot of friends. It wasn't like you were brand new. You knew a lot of people that could very well be in the middle of this. That's correct. And were, and yeah. But a lot more were dead than were. Not that I'm trying to diminish the situation. It's just what's going through your head versus what's going on in reality. Yeah. So uh, I worked uh, 24 hours straight and then... Started a new shift. <laughs> I finished at 5.59, I think, in the morning and started right up again at 6 o'clock in the morning. Gosh. And then we headed down to uh, Ground Zero for uh, security and relief and whatever else. And wow. it became a massive thing because they didn't know how to move that many people. From the that many officers from the outer boroughs to Manhattan and Manhattan back for relief, and eventually, all by the way, those four missing officers just from Arkansas came back. Uh, one of them has since passed from uh, 9 11 related illness. 
And that's something I do want us to cover because we've lost a whole lot more to post 9-11 issues, cancer uh, and all of that stuff. Do you even know what the count is now? Uh, I believe it's close to 300. Okay. But it's happening all the time. And uh, the unit that I was in when I retired, while I was in that unit, we lost uh, two officers. Uh, active sergeant and a retired sergeant within uh, six months of each other. Wow. And still losing one of them, and one of them passed the day I was getting released from the hospital. And that's there's this video of the speech when I'm discharged from the hospital after getting injured. Mm-hmm. I was the first official phone call about him passing. They didn't know that the department had been notified at that point. And we're talking about your injury from the protest just in the last That's correct. Yes. What Sorry. year and a half. Yeah. So that was in July of twenty. Right. And I was notified in the hospital I was getting ready to be discharged that Sergeant Dave Yu had passed. And the department didn't know at that point. Wow. So he had he was an army vet. He had liver cancer. He had moved to Texas. And uh, within, um, within like uh, two years of being retired, uh, he went for his annual 9-11 physical, which everyone should do. And he actually went for his uh, annual VA physical. And they, during the annual 9-11 physical, they noticed something was wrong with his liver count. And they said, not much you can do. And he came back to New York and he was gone within uh, eight months. And I, you know, the audience needs to understand too, these are, these are physicals that they're still going through. <laughs> All of us that were up there, um, some of us haven't been as good about it as others. But uh, anyway, um, I'm, I'm invincible, so I don't have to do these things. But, you know, I don't think people realize that everyone that was up there in the in the pit, the teams that came in, all the NYPD, the Port Authority, FDNY, all of them, every year they have to go in and hold their breath. Because, yeah. because there's not a timeline that, okay, you're considered to have not, right. you won't catch anything from it now. Yeah. Look, 20 years have gone by and someone could still come up with something that's going to be related to and it. And they are. Yeah. And that's the scary part for them every year. Again, I, I think the public, we were kind of shocked at how the public, even around Times Square, when I was there six months afterwards, was like, y'all are still going down there and doing this stuff? We're like, are you kidding? <laughs> I realize Times Square is a little distance away from Ground Zero. But yeah, I just don't think civilians realize what everybody up there still goes through. Right. Yeah, no, listen, I've lost too many people, kind of lost account of how many people have died from 9-11 laid illness uh, since then. I go for my checkup every year, but it's disheartening and scary when you hear about, oh, there was two more funerals this week. Oh, there's another guy, and in fact, someone... Uh, without naming names, I was just inform another uh, gentleman I worked with in SRG just went into hospice about mm-hmm. a week or two ago from 9-11 related illnesses. And he's been retired hmm, two, three years. Wow. He moved down to Tennessee. 
to kind of enjoy his retirement about three years. And uh, he just went into hospice two weeks ago. So it's still going on. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah. So um, I guess within staying within the storyline, uh, so it's the second day I'm down at uh, doing security because we had to keep people. No one could enter Manhattan south of Canal Street. So Canal Street, to give you a perspective, is about 15 to 20 blocks north of the World Trade Center. It's the first major street that goes east to west to kind of cut off. It was like a cutoff point for trying to keep people out of anywhere near grounds. And of course, the first week we were not issued masks. Uh, they didn't have masks to issue. Right. And then uh, people started coming out of the woodwork with masks. Of course, we were told the air was safe by uh, Christy Todd Whitman, the EPA. And listen, I don't know anything about, I didn't know anything at the time about environmental sciences, but uh, I knew she wasn't, that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was thinking, just all think of all the plastic wiring and metal wiring. Asbestos. You know, right. Yeah, well, I didn't know about asbestos at the time. But just thinking about the plastics mm-hmm. alone, yeah. uh, inhaling that, you, you know, it can't be good. And then, of course, later on, you find out uh, Tower One was built entirely with asbestos in it. Jeez. And then when they started building Tower Two, they were up to like the 60th floor. They had put in about eight floors of asbestos into it. They took it out, and then they started to take out the asbestos in Tower One, and they realized it's safer, which it actually is, to just heal it. Mm-hmm. than to go through the issue of trying to remove any more. And it is safer to seal it. The only problem is if the plane gets hit by, if a building gets hit by a plane and collapses, that asbestos is now in the Right. Yep. But uh, under normal house rules of, and I've been in a unit with the hazmat, we've learned that it's better if you have this asbestos floor to just throw another floor on top of it and it seals the asbestos, it'll never hurt you. Sure. Of course, in this case, you know, when two towers collapse, um, all that asbestos is in the air. Hmm. And uh, it's uh, a lot of people have paid the price. And there's very, we only need to specialize masks can prevent asbestos and uh, those masks were few and far between. They gave us them, but by this time it had been uh, uh, the end of the first week when we got the real good masks, most of us. Mm. And um, also we still didn't know that the rules of learning about you can't just take it off when you're hot in the thing. You know, uh, we hadn't been taught the proper use of seaburn, uh, which is chemical, biological, nuclear, explosive uh, use for hazmat uh, personal protective equipment, which I didn't really learn until I got into my last unit, the strategic response group, 
where I became a hazmat technician, but that was 20, you know, 15 years later sure. that I'm learning about all this stuff. So basically the, se the second day on I was there, um, I remember uh, crazy stuff, just like, it was just chaos. The weird thing I remember is the building itself collapsed mostly uh, west. I mean, it, it fell actually right on top of each other, but most of, other than right on top of each other, it fell mostly west, which was actually a good thing because most of the people evacuated from the Twin Towers evacuated east. Wow. And that was Church Avenue. And had it fallen more east, more people would have been killed. So unfortunately, that's where the firemen were all set up on the West Side Highway. And we had firemen, we knew were killed under fire trucks. And you just physically couldn't get to them because you had these beams that literally some of them said the weight on the beams. It's crazy. It's like painted on them after a collapse, it would say five ton beams, 10 ton beams, 25 ton beams. Wow. And you know, like they fell out of fire trucks and they're like, yeah, there's firemen. You can't, dead firemen, they can't get to them because you can't move that without major, major heavy equipment. Yeah, people can't, people can't comprehend even even the video that you saw the the live streaming from the new yeah. uh, there's no way to comprehend you know seeing an entire a, a large fire truck fully loaded with water everything literally almost you felt like it was the size of a toilet piece of uh, a roll of toilet paper it was just rolled up squished compacted it, it was hard to even fathom it looking at it yeah, it was uh, crazy. Um, a couple of other strange things happened. There was actually, we call them uh, like dinner cruises. There was a boat that was a dinner cruise. And when 9-11 happened, they said all boats have to pull into the nearest dock. And so this dinner cruise boat pulled into uh, right by the police memorial, which had just been built, uh, down by Wall Street on the west side. And that boat ended up being a blessing in disguise for rescue workers mm -hmm. and construction workers because there was no electricity in that area. So nothing was heated. If it was hot, you had no air conditioning. If it was cold, you had no heat. And that boat, because it was stuck in dock there, ended up being an amazing place for rescue workers to go to because it had electricity. It was off, further enough away from ground zero that it was clean and um, you could sleep there to take a break. You could eat hot food, cold, cold food. It was clean. And eventually they did build another rescue type station a few blocks away. But that was the first one. And it was the only place at first that had electricity near it because there was none for the those other powered tents from the Army Corps of Engineers weren't built for like probably like two, three months after. Mm -hmm. So uh, that boat was a pretty phenomenal place to exist in, just by the grace of God. So we were there the second day. Uh, I don't think I had made it to the boat yet, but they were still worried about other buildings collapse. And then 
uh, Building 7 did collapse. Uh, I forget when. And uh, then uh, I did that for a couple more days of digging through rubble, not finding much of a person, finding parts. I remember running into a guy from the Mexican. Uh, he was like an expert in the Mexican Rescue Earthquake Authority. And he was like a big expert in rescuing. And he had tremendous energy, but uh, it just seemed like there wasn't much to be done. And we need to talk about the dogs some, too. That was that was another thing. There were so many dogs there, and I remember talking with some of the handlers, and they talked about, uh, and Rich can elaborate on it, how the dogs were getting so discouraged, not finding anybody. So they would actually have the NYPD, FDNY guys that were there hide in the rubble so the dogs could find somebody wow. alive to keep them keep motivated. Them, yeah. Oh, it was it was just heart-wrenching. <laughs> The, all the different stories. A lot of those dogs became more of a use of emotional, unofficial emotional support dogs <laughs> than rescue dogs. And yes. it was crazy because I was there when they found the uh, Port Authority guys, the last two Port Authority guys that were found alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was after the second day, I think. And they were the, we, we couldn't imagine that there weren't more people alive in pockets in the rubble. There had to have been. It just seemed unfathomable that there weren't more people alive. And there were two Port Authority guys were found the second or third day, and I think they were the last ones found alive. That was the movie uh, World Trade Center with uh, Nicholas Cage. That's a true story. And uh, I was on the outskirts of that when they found them. Wow. And uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was a crazy, you know, like so much stuff that went on, bizarrely, people donating stuff. The smell, everything was gray, and dust and papers. That's all I remember. Just like gray dust and papers. It almost seemed like you were looking live through a black and white TV screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, they didn't find any furniture. There was no printers, equipment. Any, it, it, everything was pretty much pulverized. It was just paper. Ground up. Yep. Ground up. People have no comprehension. Yeah, that's just amazing that all that stuff in those buildings could, you know, be reduced to just Nothing. dust. Yeah. 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 Were you down there? So you didn't actually get to the towers when the it, it was well, no, because you didn't get there until after they collapsed. Um, but we certainly dealt with a lot of people that had to talk to us about the people jumping from the buildings, all of those kinds of things. It, it was just, there was no way to prepare for what we were going to hear. And then sadly, some of what we heard was about supervision in the pit, writing people up. And it, it was amazing. It, you just couldn't comprehend everything that went on in that area for so long. Yeah, there was so much, you know, incomp. I mean, I don't want to say so much incompetence, but when you are a leader and you're an incompetent leader and the shit hits the fan, that's when you're going to stand out as being an incomp- a poor leader. Yes. And that certainly happened. And, you know, uh, there's so many crazy stories about, you know, uh, 
incompetency. But for the most part, it was about heroics. And the people down there working, there's no question, worked tirelessly, you know, endlessly. Uh, listen, I was there be. for, we averaged the first couple of weeks, something like every day was about a 17 and a half hour day. And you didn't go home. Y'all didn't even go home. Well, for 17 and a half hours, we were there. So 18 hours sometimes. And then most people didn't go home because it was like, okay, I got, you know, uh, five and a half hours till I'm working again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, where am I, where am I going to go sleep for five and a half hours? So, um, you know, we slept at the precincts. Sometimes we did go home. Uh, I remember like the, maybe like the fifth day I was able, I didn't even change. I still had like full of ground zero sh- shit all over me. I actually got on the New Jersey transit train cause I had to go pick up my car. Cause I didn't have a vehicle and, you know, exhausted with only like six hours of sleep. Neither. We needed a car to either go home and sleep, change, or whatever. So, uh, without even like with all covered in ground zero soot, I got on New Jersey Transit, headed out to my mother's like six o'clock in the morning on no sleep after working like 18 hours. And I remember I got off the train and I was like, I didn't want to wake my mother up. So, I saw a New Jersey like medical and dentistry police. And I remember I went up to him and I, I'm in uniform, full uniform, covered in crap. And I was just like, hey, do you think you can take me to my mother's house on East Brunswick? I don't have a car. And he was a rookie and he's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to. So I was like, could you ask your boss? So his boss came by. Drove me, like he must have been brand new. Rookie. Like I literally just came from, obviously you could see, I had like, you know, like rope on me, flashlights, dirt, a helmet, you know, like, you know, I was like, I'm sure, you know, can you ask your boss? Like, like nothing's going on here at the Robert Wood Johnson University of Medicine and Dentistry, please. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a ride 15 minutes to my mother's house. So I got the ride, picked up the car, and uh, then I uh, started doing the Papa stuff. And I want to tell oh. you, Rich, the shirt you sent me, one of your shirts you had worn at Ground Zero, is proudly hanging. Yeah, you sent it to me, and it is proudly hanging in our reception area here in the new office. I meant to send I you a picture. You know I did that. Yep. One of my uniform shirts? Yep. Doesn't have your name on it, but you. It, it didn't have your name, but it has um, uh, your patches and everything. It was one of the long sleeve shirts that you sent me. Okay, so I will tell you one crazy story about Ground Zero. I remember, like being around digging, and we, like I said, we weren't finding much of people, and there wasn't any hot food except for that boat. But that boat was also like six blocks away. You've been working it hard all day, man. Six blocks, it's a walk. You know, it's exhausting. We remember like lying down just on the side of a building. 
because you're so tired. And I'm, this is the strangest story. And I'm walking by, and this girl was wearing some type of familiar-looking uniform. And she just went, McDonald's cheeseburgers? Chicken nuggets? And I was like, no. And I start walking. I go, wait, what'd you just say? <laughs> and I turn around and look at her. She's in a McDonald's uniform. <laughs> and she was like, McDonald's cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets. And I was like, I'll take 10 of them. <laughs> the drive-through came to Ridge. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? Where's this food from? And McDonald's had like this emergency, like temporary headquarters truck that which could travel to disaster sites and cook food. Wow. And it was the greatest cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Because at that point, people were just bringing in like, you know, to go sandwiches, you know, like that sort of. So it was like the first time I had like some type of hot food. Wow. In like a week or two. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was such a crazy, crazy time. And I remember like people like coming up to us were so nice. And at one point we were in a van just doing security one down one street and it was raining so bad. We all just stuffed into this van and this like, Girl dressed in like a hippie outfit, flowers, was coming up to each of the vans, torrential downpour on a bicycle. And she'd knock on the window, roll down the window, and she'd say, hey, I made these cookies for you guys. Wow. And it was like things like that, the kind of, the good memories. Yes. There. So uh, from there, we then started Papa. And uh, Bill got, um, Bill Janae, the head of Papa. He got a building, uh, the Federal Reserve, 44 Maiden Lane. If you saw the movie Die Hard 3, <laughs> that's the building. Yeah, we were really thrilled to know we were in a building on the very top floor that had more gold in it in the basement <laughs> than Fort Knox. And we're like, this wouldn't be a target area, would no. it, by any chance? <laughs> and um, they were so great for, to us. Yes. And they this building. And they said, if any officers need help, the Federal Reserve said, they gave us a whole floor. And we set up a whole floor for peer support mm -hmm. and help cops out. And uh, it was a major operation that lasted almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it did last a year. Yeah, because I was there. My last trip, I flew home on the first anniversary. And the planes were basically empty. My team was on there. We had a federal judge out of Montgomery that I happened to go to church with and nobody else. And, you know, people were like, are you not afraid to fly on the first time? I said, are you kidding? This is the safest place to be. I mean, they were combing yeah. planes and checking people and, and all of that stuff. But, Rich, you were very instrumental. I have to kind of brag on you a little bit because I don't think you will on yourself. But you were pretty instrumental in helping getting a lot of the stuff set up also over at Fresh Kills, which was the name of the landfill prior to 9-11. That was always kind of weird to me. Um, but that's where everything started being shipped. How soon did you get that set up over there? So what happened was um, 
they realized that everything at ground zero needed to be sorted and they needed a place to do it. And in, I think, March of that year, of, of 2001, they closed the landfill. And they were starting to now ship all garbage to New Jersey. Ironically, I'll hold off on my <laughs> <laughs> But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Moving right so, along. Um, so Stat- the Staten Island landfill, it, it was Dutch. It was the Fresh Kills Creek. It was, I, I don't know. It, it, it means like water kills in Dutch or something. So remember, New York was uh, was uh, part of New Amsterdam and Dutch land territory before it was owned by the British. And that's where the term fresh kills comes from. So uh, the landfill was closed and then they reopened it strictly for uh, the 9-11 attacks. So what they did at first was they had Building 7, which was that federal building that I mentioned, was separately uh, sifted through by all federal agents because there were classified materials. The bin Laden unit that actually went after Osama bin Laden was in Building 7. Hmm. So um, along with other CIA, Secret Service, Customs, you name it. So Building 7 was only sifted through by federal officers, which that lasted about two weeks until they realized this is a major disaster. You're not going to be able to uh, find whatever, you know, is all ruined at that point. So Building 7 was separate, and then the rest of the World Trade Center was divided into about four or five sections. There was one large section for really large pieces. Then there was like two sections for medium-sized pieces. And then there was like four or eight sections for really tiny pieces that would come on a conveyor belt. And you would sift through material. And as if you remember being at the landfill, the head of the landfill would say, you're not here to find a black box. We don't care about any of that. Our job is to find body parts to give families closure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that for a little bit, and it was crazy because it was all mud. And they set up a mash tent when it first started, literally like the TV show Mash, yes. for food and or just to take a break. And you're on top of a landfill that's spewing out methane every second. <laughs> the smell was horrible. Uh, and that was just, I mean, without even 9-11 stuff, it would be right. horrible. I, I only spent one shift over there. I said, I'll go to the ground zero all day long. You know, when you ID cards blowing around, driver's licenses, paper, it's where all the cars went, everything went. And, you know, you'd find like a child's sweater with a, the arm off of it, and you couldn't help but wonder. And it may have just been in somebody's vehicle. It, it didn't, right. but you couldn't help but wonder. You know, it, that was, yeah, the the ground zero was easier for me. Some people preferred the landfill. Hmm. But uh, I remember they would put water down to keep the dust from rising. Mm-hmm. And 
by putting the water down to keep the dust from rising, you then would notice wherever you walked, the ground was bubbling from the methane. Jeez. So imagine walking around and you see mud and bubbles, which was kind of like what ground zero was. And then tons of steel and like they saved all the elevator generators in one section, pieces of the plane, uh, another. And it was it was like something from another planet. Yeah, the big globe from which of the financial centers groups was that huge globe that I think they took to Battery Park eventually. Yeah, no, that that's actually so that globe was Originally, if you had the World Trade Center set up, mm-hmm. so imagine the two towers, that globe in the middle was kind of like a mall area, and that globe was just the center of, it was just, it's like a stat, it was like a piece of art in the center of the mall area between the towers. Okay. Where people walk. Okay. Then also right near that was, uh, I think also next to that globe was the memorial for the first World Trade Center attack, where uh, that was where they threw the bomb, excuse me, in the garage, and, you know, um, like seven people and an unborn child killed in the uh, parking garage. So... uh, Do you remember the story about the FBI agent that was Osama bin Laden's number one arch nemesis? I don't remember his name, and I feel terrible not remembering his name, but he just happened to be in Building 7, correct, and was killed that day? Uh, No. Oh, I thought he was. He was in Building 1. Oh, okay. What happened was, there's actually a movie about him, and he was a book of Looming Towers, and his name was John O'Neill. And John O'Neill was the in charge of the Bin Laden unit that went after, you know, um, al-Qaeda and bin Laden. And John O'Neill was a big kind of showboat in New Yorker type, but he knew what he was doing. And the feds don't like showboaters. And eventually they, you know, like he was after bin Laden before the attacks. And then uh, he was there for, uh, you know, the bombings in Saudi Arabia, which were al-Qaeda. The bombing of the USS Cole, which is Al Qaeda, and then he started to get pushed out uh, uh, because of the Cole bombing, and then the uh, bombings in uh, Africa. Two bombings in Africa that happened at the same time. He was in charge of all that, you know, going after Al Qaeda and Bin Laden. And what happened was the FBI eventually pushed him out, and they pushed him out. And September 10th was, I believe, his first day as head of security for the World Trade Center. That's right. That I, I knew there was a twist in there to it that it was so bizarre. So, so uh, Al-Qaeda actually killed their number one arch nemesis and probably didn't even know. Yep. Jeez. And so John O'Neill, yeah, his first day, it was like second day that ever working for the head of World Trade Center security. Uh, he was killed in the attacks. Bizarre. So pretty, pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah, so uh, we did Papa, and um, the first issue was we had officers that needed help. And the main thing was, is you kind of, I like to tell people, um, the first officers that really needed help, imagine 
1% of the population, of any population, having crisis separate from policing, separate from everything else. They're, you know, they have severe depression or they have their own family traumas going on. Let's say it's 1% of the population and they're just getting by. Well, imagine that's police officers. 1% of 40,000 are having a hard time, either personal issues, deaths in the family, suicides, accidents, traumas, loss of a child, whatever. And September 10th, 2001, they're just getting by. And then yeah. 9-11 happens. Those are the officers who needed help first. And then from there, you had officers that maybe were doing okay, but having issues. They needed help. And then you had officers who were traumatized that day. Mm -hmm. They needed help. And then officers who were doing okay, but then the 18-hour shifts every day pushed them over the edge with the traumas of losing a loved one. Many officers lost relatives. Uh, you know, like, you know, we mentioned Kathy Bajano lost her husband. She's a police officer with me, lost her husband and brother. Other officers lost their brothers or sisters or wives or cousins or uh, had other issues that they were just getting by or doing okay. Then these 18-hour days really put a toll on And, you know, imagine being away from your family. And, and the family factor. Yeah, the family factor. And then also bringing home you know, the concerns of uh, environmental, bringing home clothes that were covered in God knows what. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just dust. It wasn't just asbestos. There were people we were covered in people. And uh, I grew up downtown. Right? My, my mother actually worked. The original AT&T building was right across the street from the World Trade Center. So I used to go there as a kid. I went there a lot. And so, you know, you kind of... Cumulative stress kind of adds on to you. And then also being in POP, we debriefed thousands and thousands of officers. And we had teams, hundred, like 150 peer teams come or come back to help us debrief officers who were involved in it, not involved in it, family involved in it, having struggling to get by while they're in it. And this went on for uh, a year. Mm -hmm. I remember, hey, listen, I wasn't shy about it. I got burnt out early. But I took a step back and I said, I'm going to help with other things. I'll get supplies. I'll organize the place. I'll, you know, and, and that's what I did. Kind of uh, just keep things running. <coughs> and then when I was ready to get back in it, I went back in it. But the most important thing is that we self-cared in the beginning every day meaning we debriefed ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in the entire middle of this, something comes and shakes everybody to the core. I don't know if you remember this. How it happened, I think, around October or November. A plane taking off for the Dominican Republic crashed into the Rockaways, yep. killing everyone on caught in the turbulence, supposedly, behind another plane, 
and it crashed into a house, a couple of houses in the Rockies. Mm-hmm. And that just sent everybody headed to the tailspin. And I responded to that. And I'll be honest with you, I saw more bodies in that one day than I did all of nine o'clock. Because they were, without getting the details, they were intact, which was most more than I could say for most of nine. But, uh, Y'all got hit with a lot in a short period of time. That's great. But, you know, that was the impressive part to me on the last trip up there. Because, again, I, I brought five different teams up just from the Alabama team. And that last trip, I've taken, well, the first trip, I get there and I'm looking at this rubble. And we didn't get there. We couldn't even get there till December. And it's still burning. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, this is going to be going on for years and years. <laughs> and then the last trip was when they brought the last beam out of ground zero. And I was there with Rich who kept me from probably getting arrested. Cause I laughed so hard at something that was the whole place was silent except for Susan <laughs> laughing and Rich throws his hand over my mouth. I don't know if you remember that, but it was when a particular female Senator that eventually became a first lady, uh, walked in and nobody clapped. No, I mean, you could hear a pin drop on the dirt <laughs> except Susan laughing. <clears throat> and you were standing behind me. You remember that? No, but I would have been a sergeant at that time doing security. And so that's, I was there. I was there. Uh, I got promoted um, in January. And then I ended up said, well, at least I don't have to do this 9 11 stuff anymore. Then I went to the ninth precinct where every week, at least once to twice a week, we were back at ground zero doing security. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it. That that last beam comes out and I'm thinking, what an amazing group to get through that. And that's all over right. at, at Fresh Kill still being sorted for, I don't know how long that went on, but I'm sure quite it some time. Up. It caught up. Fresh Kills had caught up eventually to pretty close to and because everything had slowed down Mm -hmm. and then the last piece that they needed to remove so picture it like a giant bathtub which is what they used to call it because it was water at one time the world trade center was part of the east river that area and it was all landfill and actually they found an old ship from like the 1700s buried in that landfill Yeah, I remember. I think, it was, I think it was Rich that I'm in down in Ground Zero, and you see water coming through the what are those called slurry walls that they had built up because again, it it was landfill. It was part of the river, and somebody uh, probably Rich, but somebody makes the statement. Yes, yeah, you understand, we could all drown in here. And I'm thinking, well, let's just add <laughs> a little more to this. You know, it, it people don't understand all the different factors they were facing up yeah. there. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, everything was, there's a million stories of which we would be able to get even to attend them. But, uh, you know, it was so crazy, such a bizarre time. Uh, it was 
you know, I hate to say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, mm -hmm. but I will say this. The worst day, one of the worst days in the history of this country was also one of the greatest days in the history of this country because it was the largest rescue operation in the history of this country. There were 25,000 people in that building. And out of that 25,000, yes, over 2,000 lost their lives, but if it wasn't for the cops, the firemen, and everyday New Yorkers, that number would have been a lot higher. And a little bit of luck, because as I mentioned, the towers, those people escaped eastbound, and the towers fell mostly on themselves or a little bit westbound. And, um, you know, there were some heroic stories. I mentioned Terry Tobin, and it was fun, ironic. When I was in the ninth precinct, they tell me, oh, yeah, one of the officers here, she's probably going to get the Medal of Honor for Brown Zero. She was like a housing girl, quiet. I'm like, what did she do? And they're like, well, the head of the housing authority, bodyguard, is from the ninth priest, from the ninth priest, from the housing part of the priest. And he was helping people evacuate along with this housing officer and someone else. And they passed each other when the towers collapsed. And she knew roughly where he was and climbed through rubble, found him unconscious. He's about a foot taller and about 100 pounds heavier. And she threw him on his shoulder. Jeez. And she carried him up an escalator, <laughs> a broken escalator, under ground zero, and carried him out of the house. Wow. Stories like that kind of make it all worthwhile and let you know that you're really dealing with a lot of great heroes who are unfortunately continuing to sacrifice to this day. Yes. And you know, I said, as, as difficult as it was, that was probably one of our greatest honors in my life I'll ever have is to have been up there and met the rich Max of the world, the rich Quinlans, the the Steve Brownings, um, all the people at Papa that we got to meet and really became family with. It was, uh, you know, to watch them. It was it was their their city. It was their event. We were just honored to be a part of it. And you know, being from born and raised in South Carolina and living in Alabama and Louisiana, I'd never lived in a city that had buildings that tall. <laughs> and to hear them talking about they literally grew up with the towers. They watched them from bedroom windows go Being up built, a floor right. at a time as they're getting a year older and and the impact of those two towers being gone. You know, to us, it, it, they were tall buildings and right. stuff, but they had real meaning to people from New York. Right. And then, you know, they talked about the, the blankness, the vacant, and then they put the blue lights up to mimic the buildings. I, never really thought that was necessarily a great idea because eventually that had to go away. But you just don't have an appreciation of what all of the things there meant to all the people that are in there digging and trying to find friends. It it was they were more than just buildings, more than just towers. Yeah, you know, um as I mentioned, I, I grew up down there. And actually most officers are not from the city. Most officers uh from the, the outer boroughs the suburbs, 
And, but I actually grew up literally across the street from the World Trade Center. And that's when I realized, hey, this was my home. This is where I lived. This is where I spent my childhood. And, um, you know, it's the, the new museum they did a great job with. Um, they really did. I was very impressed with it. And, but the other flip side of that, the tragedies they got to have lifelong friends like you, Sheriff Jones, who passed away from lung cancer, from probably not because of this or anything else. I think uh, they did, he did get taken care of. He did, yeah. But, um, you know, like for these officers stuck at the landfill, and this is the impact that Sheriff Jones had. Imagine you're exhausted, you're angry, very angry, a lot of anger internally within the police department. At that time, the anger's back now for other reasons. But, uh, you know, um, to have this big, huge sheriff, 10-gallon hat, <laughs> come up in front of, you know, been digging for hours at the landfill, sorting through crap, looking for body parts. And he said, you know, I just want you guys to know you're all doing a heck of a job. I'm Sheriff James Jones, Shelby County, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm real proud of you guys. And you know, what you guys are going through, a very normal feelings to go through in a very abnormal situation. But these guys here from Papa and myself and my team, we're all here. And there's nothing more you can do for somebody going through a difficult time than just to try to elevate them and let them know that there's a fellow cop there to support them. And that means the world. It really does. Yeah, James was a, he was an amazing man, a great leader. He's the one on the plane going back who said, love you, Susan, but my worst nightmare would be to find you on my <laughs> payroll as a deputy, which he was right. But he and Rich really struck up. Uh, they, they, those, it was really funny to watch those two because they just became good friends at that moment. And when James died, it, it was a very tragic day in, in Alabama. But uh, Rich actually brought um, one of the bagpipes players from hmm. NYPD to do his funeral. Wow. Yeah. And it really meant a lot to the family. It meant a lot to all of us. Um but yeah, y'all, you, you got to tell the story. You you actually took a motorcycle trip with James and his wife, didn't you? Yes. So what happened was they actually took a trip up to New York. <laughs> That's <right. laughs> uh, It was supposed to be for the first anniversary of 9-11. And when they came up in like Baltimore, there was like a car slammed on the brakes and the sheriff went down and his wife who was on the back went down. They both got hurt. She broke her leg. Ended up in the hospital. They came a day later. They, they still showed up. <laughs> she came She came in a police, uh, like they had a police car from Shelby County escort. Uh, she came in the police car. I'm like, how do you guys even still here after this? <laughs> We're coming. So we drove around Ground Zero, 
and we go to the South Street Seaport, which is like a tourist area. We have lunch, and I had been in a minor accident on my bike right in the middle of 9-11, and I just had it fixed up. 40 bikes. We go inside the seaport. We come out. There's 39. My motorcycle stole. Jeez. Oh, it gets better. Gets way better. <laughs> so one of the deputies goes, well, no offense, but I'm glad it's your bike, not mine, because my gun was in the, in the lockbox inside of the bike. And I'm like, we don't do that here. You don't leave your gun <laughs> locked in the side of your motorcycle. So the bike gets stolen. Fast forward three years later, or three and a half years later, I get a phone call from a NYPD officer. Hello, is Richie Mack there? This is him. This is Detective Mick O'Rourke, NYPD Auto Club. And he's from Ireland, has an Irish accent. And I know who this officer is because I worked with him in my first precinct, in the 75th precinct in East New York. And I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? And he's like, nothing, sir. It's <laughs> like, I'm calling to let you know we found your motorcycle. No way. I go, I just had it fixed up by one of our, the officers that we've worked with. And he's like, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, hey, jerk, we work together in East New York. Oh, Richie, how you doing? You'll never guess where they found your motorcycle. Where? Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> what the what? hell? <laughs> so he goes, yeah, apparently... The mob stole 18 bikes up and down the East Coast. Your bike was one of them. The FBI was following the whole time. They shipped it to a wannabe IRA guy. All criminals in Ireland claim they're IRA terrorists. <laughs> and they shipped it to him. And then they made the arrest like six months later. Then they had to get a hold of an NYPD cop to help them contact owners and then the insurance company had to sell i they like they, they i gave them the title when the motorcycle was stolen because they paid out insurance so they paid me back oh they if i wanted the motorcycle back i had to buy it back from the insurance company because they paid out the theft fund. <laughs> so they eventually after some difficulties they let me buy the bike back and then I was getting this motorcycle back that had been gone for almost four to five years. Jeez. It's bad. So here's, here's the crazy part of the story. <laughs> yep. It's as if it hasn't been crazy enough. I then go to Sheriff Jones's funeral. And I present them with a the flag. I thank them for coming to support us, put their fellow officers. During 9-11, there's nothing greater an officer can do than come to assist their fellow officers. And I said, when Sheriff James Jones came out, was the last time I had my motorcycle. This is at his funeral. He's getting buried on his property in Shelby County, Alabama. He said, um, he was with me. The last time he was in England, he was with me when my motorcycle was stolen. Today, as we bury the shuttle, that motorcycle is arriving in Port of Newark, New Jersey, if 
from Dublin, Ireland. So today they both come home. <laughs> and that's an absolute true story. Yep. I got my motorcycle back the day. Well, it arrived in Newark the day we buried the show. And I still have that bike to this day. Crazy. I couldn't believe it. When and I, was... I have an article. I have an article that I told my friend sent me about two weeks after that. They did a full article on this in the Daily Irish Mirror. <laughs> but they made up they made up an interview with me. <laughs> And they used a picture of the cop in Ireland to say it was me. <laughs> Freaking media. I have that article. I, That's um, amazing. <laughs> I have that article framed. It's in my basement, so it would take me a few minutes to get it. <laughs> but uh, I have that article framed from the Daily Irish Mirror of the return of the bike. And which is now permanently called the sheriff. <laughs> and actually, right now, it is in a bike shop getting completely overhauled. And it should be finished, hopefully, by uh, the end of this week. Nice. And the guy who was overhauling uh, said, do you really want to spend this money? Because the amount of money you're spending, it's about the value of the motorcycle. So I told them the oh. story. And I said, I'm never getting rid of this bike. Uh -uh. So either I fix it up or I just let it fall apart. So it's literally getting, hopefully it'll be done by this week. I'll send you guys a picture when it's all Please. dusting up. And what kind of bike is it? It was a hot, a Vespa. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 2000 Fat Boy. Wow. And originally it was pearl white. And when it got stolen, they when I got it back, it was uh, midnight purple. <laughs> and the, the cop in Ireland left the fake plate on it as like a little gift to me. <laughs> the fake uh, Irish plate. So I have that as well. With a fake Irish interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What'd she say? With a fake Irish interview. <laughs> With a fake, I have that article too. Like supposedly a comment I say is, when I found out they were t they had it, I had to sit down with the shock. <laughs> That's something an American would even say. So what That's color my, did you put the bike back to its original color when you got it? Oh, no, now it's uh, matte black. Okay. All matte black. And it should be ready. Uh, I just spoke to the guy yesterday, actually. So uh, Yeah, sure. Sheriff Jones was so upset about that bike being stolen. You'd have thought it was his bike that had been stolen. He was, I think he was more upset than Rich was. And uh, we, yeah, when we, when you send us the picture, we'll make sure we put, because he sent me a really good picture of, of Sheriff Jones that now I'm excited to have because I didn't have it. Uh, that put we, side by yeah, side. put him side by side. The sheriff and the, the sheriff. sheriff, yes. And, so he knew I was going to get the bike back uh, before he passed. Yeah. <laughs> Just didn't realize it would come Man, the same amazing. day. Yeah, and you know there were there were some funny stories and things that that happened too. We you know we did get an opportunity to get out and kind of goof around with these guys. <clears throat> um, Rich took me over, took our team over one of our trips to. Uh, this was when Granny was with me. Uh, Granny was the head of dispatch out of Chilton County, Alabama. She'd never been 
like hardly anywhere. Yet she was so busy looking up at all the tall buildings, she'd trip and fall. And, <laughs> and uh, Rich took us to his precinct. Now, and this was the precinct they were talking about demolishing, but it was the also the precinct that the front of it was used for which TV show, Rich? Original, well, it was used for NYPD Blue. Yes. But before NYPD Blue, it was used for a TV show from the 70s called Kojak. Kojak. Yeah. Kojak. Yes. And yeah, they were going to demolish it. So Rich takes us in there and is showing us around and he's showing us the jail cells because they actually had some in there. And Susan, walk on in. I walk in <laughs> and he locks and the door locks. You remember this? I remember locking the door. And he had a whole round set of keys that were like skeleton keys. That's how old <laughs> this building was. And yeah. And then he starts the, he had a water bottle in his hand. He goes, yeah, this is how we used to, to hose them down. And he squirted this at me and I'm going, you're a dead man when I got out, Rich Mac. And then he couldn't find the key. Couldn't figure out which key to let me out. I think you were even getting a little bit panicked, as was I, because I'm thinking, if you don't hurry up and find that thing, and I, I'm fixing to rip it off the hinges and come after you. <laughs> and we all had our you made picture. it out. Yeah, I did. And we all had our picture made out in front with on the steps. But, uh, yeah, and they did not demolish it, correct? They did. Oh, they did. Brand new. Oh. But they had to, the front facade, the stones, they had to save and had to be put in the exact same order that it was in when the building was built. Wow. So what happened was when they realized that they built the building, they overbuilt it. And so like the trusses that supported the other floors were like three foot high beams. And you can't just, they were too big for uh making any use of the building was so old it had a coal chimney that then they converted it to an elevator <laughs> that then after world war during world war ii because of the steel shortage they took the elevators out so it never had an elevator after like during world war ii since world war ii it was just two empty shafts Jeez. and it was like a seven-story building so every day you go to work you're going up Four floors to the locker room, or five floors to the gym, or the cops have a locker room on the sixth floor. So they rebuilt it. It's a beautiful building. It flooded during Sandy, like everything else did. <laughs> um, but uh, it's still a beautiful uh, building. That's a ninth priest. That's why we was a sergeant. And is that where? You, but that's not where you retired from. Oh no, I left the ninth. I was only the ninth for less than a year. Then I trained. Uh, Newly graduated recruits for about four years. Gosh, that's scary. I'm square. sorry, but that's scary. <laughs> there are a lot of little riches running around. <laughs> that was the best time I had in the police department, though. I'll tell you that by far. Just you know, it's nothing better than being with the cops that have a great attitude, they're willing to learn, showing the right way how to do things. <laughs> <laughs> Her chest thing's you know, falling uh, down the room. <laughs> no, that's Hudson just came home from school. Oh. <laughs> so um, uh, there was nothing great than like teaching cops the right way how to do things, mm -hmm. the right way how to handle people, the right way to use tactics. And, you know, uh, I took it very serious and I loved every minute of it. 
And then uh, from there, I went back to uh, Brooklyn and I got promoted. I ended up in the South Bronx, by Yankee, just south of Yankee Stadium. And then uh, I was there when Sandy hit and then Occupy Wall Street. And then, uh, then I got uh, asked to come to the specialized unit strategic response group where we do heavy weapons and hazmat, respond to any major incident in the city. And our other last specialty was disorder control. And so we went for every protest for the last five years of my career mm-hmm. in the city. So uh, what was your biggest memory from 9-11, Susan? You know, and I don't know why you did it or what it triggered in you, but the first time you took us uh, to Ground Zero in that trip with the sheriff and those and one of the buildings close by, the stairs were still there. Part of the building was there. And all of a sudden, you kind of darted off from us and ran up those stairs. And it, some memory came back to you that that's something you had been involved in there that was all part of the early stages of 9-11. Do you remember what that was? I wish I did. Uh, you know, it kind of like... Um... There's so many you know, like memories that were there, so many memories that weren't. Uh, I kind of feel like part of those stairs was a memory more from my childhood. Oh, it may have being, been. Being there with, because as I mentioned, uh, my mother was a block away, the original AT&T. And, um, you know, like we were there, with just, there was just so much, so many little things that I try to write down about finding people, unfortunately, finding most of the parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was with you that day when they found Water Smith. Mm-hmm. As I said, at that point, I was doing security, and uh, they buried her on Valentine's Day, which was her birthday, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. After several funerals already, because it was anticipated they wouldn't find her. Yes, so... That was another strange thing that happened during 9-11. Was some people had two funerals. Yeah. At a funeral, and then they had a second one when they found remains. It's very strange. Yeah, the ESU and, guys, you know, that was another memory, um, too, that it meant a lot to me. They invited me to her funeral with them, and I felt like an outsider in, intruding, so I didn't go. But then when, and I can't remember, Rich, was it the first anniversary that all the different ceremonies were held around Ground Zero? Like ESU had their own, and I had maintained contact with a lot of those guys. And they, anyway, they invited me to come to theirs. It was going to be a Catholic service there right around the outer perimeter of Ground Zero. And um, Apollo was one of the dogs, a German Shepherd. I have I him in, in our uh, superheroes thing mm-hmm. along with Rich, a picture of Rich in the middle of Occupy Wall Street that he would send me these pictures like, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> and there's Rich in the middle of that chaos. And uh, anyway, as they were uh, doing uh, at that time, I was an Episcopalian. So it's a similar service to the Catholic mm-hmm. service. And Apollo and his handler were right next to me. And uh, when we got to the part where you exchanged the piece with someone mm-hmm. next to you, I knelt down to that dog and he licked me from my chin <laughs> to the top of my forehead. 
And I cried and I looked at the handler and I said, the peace, it will never have the same meaning exchanging with people that it had with that dog. Not unless somebody licks you, huh? (laughs) And he was kind of the, Apollo was kind of the poster child for the dogs. And then I think Hmm. you sent me the notice when he died. And that dog wasn't that old, but he looked... The handler and I had that conversation. He was so great and everything, and he looked like he was 12, 15 years old, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. And then Rich sent me the He left notice. a long time. He did, but he but, sent me the notice when he died. For some reason in my head, <clears throat> I'm thinking on that picture, it's 2012, but I'm not sure that that's right. I have it on his picture, the end of watch. But, yeah, that dog, that, that when he, I mean, just... And I think the handler was even shocked, too, that the dog did it. (laughs) But I I said, yeah, that was a huge honor for me. You know, it's things like that. And, you know, I found my notes probably six, eight months ago. I I know the first two trips up there, I told my team, everybody go back and just kind of write down things from that day. And I found my notes from my first trip up there with the sheriff and and, uh, Jim Finn and Max Stinson. And I read my notes, and I didn't remember anything that I'd written. It didn't even come back to me in the in the writing, reading it. It, it was, like I said, I think there's just was so much right. stuff. You're overloaded. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, um, you know, like with the dogs, mm-hmm. I learned about things that I never knew about. Something called DVET, which is Disaster Veteran Emergency Team. They were like a national veterans of Sorry, not better. Veterinarians. <laughs> Big difference. Yeah. <laughs> Some days. Uh, veterinarians that are mobilized uh, in, like, for the, like, uh, you know, in military emergency situation. So they had these tents set up all over Ground Zero, and it would say they de-vet or something like that, and it was for treatment of all the canines. You know, like they had tents for treatment of injured officers. They had tents for treatment and care for the hmm. for the canines. And that was DVET. And then they had DMORT, which was disaster mortuary. Mm-hmm. Those guys were set up for finding human remains. These were all. And then they had, you know, when you talk about the Surgeon General, the Department of Health has a uniform service station. And they were set up inside the Burger King, which I think is what we were talking about the stairs, because I ended up there because I got hurt. I think pretty sure now this is coming back to me now because you're mentioned. I got hurt. I had a piece of steel ripped into my leg. So I had to get treated. It, just, it was the, literally, it was like the second floor of a Burger King. I went in and they treated me at the Burger King, patched me up, and I went back out. Second floor of the Burger King. <laughs> we don't have second floor Burger Kings in Arizona. <laughs> and I'll tell you, another memory was New Year's Eve when you took us to um, the Episcopal Church that was right there on the outskirts of Ground Zero. And- oh, uh, well, there's... There was actually three churches. Well, there. this is the one where they set up all the the services. You go in for massage or rest, respite stuff. I thought it was all three churches. Okay. Well, oh, no, was- not, that was, I think St. 
Peter's. It's the Episcopal Church that the headstones were the only thing scorched and a few yeah. broken windows, but by location, it should have been destroyed. And uh, Mayor Giuliani was in there. And um, we went up and had an opportunity. The sheriff and I know, I know the sheriff and I did, went up and talked to the mayor. And I remember him saying, God bless Alabama. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you're going through this and this is what you're saying to us. It, it was the most, that church was covered in flags and pictures and things children had made and sent to kind of uh, let everybody know that they came from all over the world. And ironically, I found out, I don't even know if it was before I went or after I got home, but my husband at the time's cousin was head of something at that church. Mm. And she was very instrumental in all of the stuff being set up for the respite there. And it was, it was impressive, everything that was going on. But that was a huge memory for me too. I said, I wish I had continued to write from all five trips, but for whatever reason, I didn't. And I wish I had. Well, it was emotionally, it's not just physically exhausting, it was emotionally exhausting. Absolutely. You know, we've been uh, ourselves. After a while, we had to cut back on the debris because we were at, in the beginning, we were debriefing ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. And it was like, listen, it's going to be the, we're now repeating ourselves. And it's like, I, I could, you know, sit there with Susan. I already know what she's going to say. It's going to be the <laughs> same story that she said yesterday. Yep. You know, and then it became like, okay, we need, we, from now on, we're going to set a plan. We're going to debrief ourselves every Monday and debrief the outer teams every Friday or something. However, you know what I I remember from 9-11 uh, on that day, I happened to be in Texas. I was at Texas A&M University taking a reconstruction uh, collision investigation class. And I remember watching it all on TV and just, you know, being amazed that that happened here in America to begin with. And, I, you know, I remember just my heart thinking, man, these poor New York officers and firemen and and, you know, all the city residents and stuff, mm -hmm. too, that are going through this. But then it was like, after that first week, and I returned back home to Arizona, it's like, we heard about it, but it was like, in another world, yeah. you know, and we had no idea what you guys were going through at Ground Zero. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, that, it just wasn't processed, it wasn't talked about. Um, no. Yeah, it was crazy to hear the stories you know, 21 years later. Yeah. Um, and we had no idea. Our, our, you know, here in Arizona, at least, we're on the other side of the country. You know, we just returned to normal life. Absolutely. You know, it's just amazing. And Rich is right. We would we would have to, if, man, can you imagine if we had some of my team here and we had some of the other Papa guys, like I said, Q and, and Steve Browning and some of the others sitting around this podcast would go for days with yeah. the memories and the things that that happened and stuff that would kind of key us to other memories sure. and it it was like i said it was the it was the best of times and the worst of times yeah. and 
you know, and what one of the things that was kind of funny to me, because they started mandating certain people to come to the debriefings and they were not happy about being there <laughs> and they would come in with arms folded <clears throat> and sit down. And by the end of the debriefings, they're hugging us and thanking us and we're really grateful that it was mandated because they really knew they needed to come, but right. they didn't want to come. They wouldn't have to volunteer uh, and come. And I remember meeting some of them because me and my big mouth, um, I was known for when the first trip up there, uh, walking around Times Square with the sheriff and the chief and our chaplain. And and I just randomly walk up to a group of NYPD cops standing around. They'd have fires in the garbage cans, you know, to stay warm. And I'd walk up and how are y'all and how's your dog? And, you know, and they're looking at me and they're like, why are you here? And we would tell them why we were there and they're giving us patches or giving us all these things. And you could see them going, I want to talk to her because she ain't never going to be my, my desk sergeant or That's somebody. Right. <laughs> no one's going to talk to her again. <laughs> I'll never, she'll never be at one police plaza. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, I can't remember, Rich, I, you probably are the one who set it up, but I know we went into the little precinct there in Times Square that was literally just a small it's center. A substation. Is that what it is, substation there? And when we went in and we were telling them we were there and they were like, well, have you been to, um, where was it we were going? The, the um, oh, what's, oh, I just went blank. What's the, the it, what, Empire State Building? They, have you been there? And we're like, no. And they're like, oh, well, let us make this arrangement. And literally, they had a car take us. <laughs> and when we got there, people were like, who are these people? Because the lines were all around the building to get in there. And they broke through the line. We didn't go through metal detectors. <laughs> they shut down elevators, <laughs> let us get on, go up, stay as long as we wanted to, come back down. And people were still waiting in line. Like, who are these people? <laughs> but it showed the level of appreciation they had for people coming in to help them. Right. They wanted to do something. And every trip I came home, stuff was sent to me. Hmm. Uh, Rich sends me that shirt. I've got that shadow box in right. my office at home that actually has an NYPD badge in it. Um, their patches, the the get out of jail free cards <laughs> from the <laughs> the like <clears throat> the detective endowment uh, in the, what it's called association DEA. Uh, we got those. They were giving us bags. I, I still have an NYPD duffel bag. They just couldn't do enough. And wow. we're like, it was just, you know, I had an image of what NYPD officers were like from movies and stuff. I'd been up there as a child. And then you met Rich. And then I met Rich. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just, you know, yes, they come across gruff and and harsh and they use the F word in every form of the English language. I learned so much at that age. I didn't know it could be used that way. <laughs> and um, and we just kind of became family yeah. and it's just the, the uh, r meeting rich truly has been such a huge blessing in my life. My son adores him <laughs> uh, to put those two together. I turned, I couldn't believe I turned my daughter loose with a friend in New York during fleet week. <laughs> and if you don't know what fleet week is, yes. it's when all the military Navy people are in port yep. like that. Yeah. And Rich was their adult supervision. <laughs> wow. And they were fine. And what? They were fine. 
well defined. <laughs> You're the one who told me what fine stands for, dear. Yes. Yes. And uh, oh, yeah, he's calling me from up there and oh, they're having a great time. We're in this bar and that bar. And I'm thinking, what have I done? But she was of age. I couldn't stop her. And uh, so, yeah, he he's he's a major part of our family and isn't ever not going to be a major part of our family. And uh, I could only imagine what happens with Rich as the adult supervisor. <laughs> but you know what's funny because he he met Sheely, my daughter when she was gosh she may have only been about 14 or 15 and kept making comments about he was going to date her and do, do you remember calling me on her 18th birthday <laughs> and I, I was just messing with you. Yeah, but yeah, but he remembered her 18th yeah. birthday, <laughs> and he calls, and I was like, "Oh, oh hell no!" no. <laughs> and, and I, you didn't want Rich as a son-in-law. <laughs> love you, man, but no. <laughs> but it's, and that's what I mean by there. There have been so many funny things that. And it's the only way we survive events like this yeah. is to be able to have the the fun memories and the things that we can laugh about because we went through such tragic times. Yeah. And again, what an honor it was for all of us that came up there. We had teams that came from Bermuda. They came from Canada. I, were there any European teams? I don't even know if they do peer support in Europe. Uh, I don't. I don't know, but the main... Canada sent like something like 17 teams mm -hmm. and many of them came back numerous times. Mm -hmm. So Canada was really showed there at the forefront, probably of any country. Yes. More so than America, as far as peer support. Yes. So impressed with, you know, they came more than any other team and they came tenfold. Mm -hmm. It was just like nonstop, very good, very professional. Uh, you know, uh, other than the Canadian teams, the Arizona team came out the Sarah most. And, uh, Alabama and um, Mike Haley from uh, Ohio. Yes. Yeah. But Sarah Hallett, Tom actually dealt with Sarah Hallett here because she yeah. was the psychologist at Tempe. Yeah. In 1998, uh, she set up, she established our peer support team. And I was on the that ground floor of that team. And, and unfortunately, some people, uh, even within our own ranks, have suffered long-term effects yes. from not just physically but mentally yes. from what happened. Yes. And uh, all we can do is offer help to them if they want it and let them know we're here. Well, the hard part for me was I was getting worse every year. And these guys were calling me, checking on me on 9-11. I'm like, this is y'all's event, not mine. And then I have to take counseling advice from NYPD officers telling me, well, your problem is, is you haven't come back. And so what do I do? I go back. This was probably, I don't know, five, six years ago now. I went back and uh, stayed in a hotel. I went up with a friend of mine who's a captain at American and stayed in a hotel just next to the to ground zero basically and right next to where they have the footprint of the towers and we did have dinner with rich and steve and eddie and some of the others and 
and my room was all glass. It was a corner room. It was all glass up on, I don't know, about the 14th floor or something. And I could see the river and I had all my drapes open, windows open, because when I left, that whole area still wasn't first, first anniversary. There wasn't a lot of movement down there, let's say. And I go back and I slept with the windows open. It was freezing cold, mm-hmm. slept with the windows open. It was in April one year. And, and so <laughs> the next night we had dinner and it was Rich and Steve Browning. And Steve Browning at that time was one of the helicopter pilots in the aviation <laughs> unit. And I was talking about how good it was. And I slept so good listening to the sounds of the city. And he was like, you were where? And I told him, and he was like, dang, I wish I'd known. He said, man, we'd have brought that helicopter in there, shone those spotlights into your room. Good evening, Susan. <laughs> I can hear it now. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. it, it really did my heart a lot of good to go back and see it back in full swing. Yeah, I, I will say, uh, rec- make two recommendations for people for the homework. There's, there's two great short movies. About 9-11 that have a good message. One of them is called Boat Lift with Tom Hanks. And it's about a 10-minute movie, a documentary short, and it's about on 9-11 how Manhattan was an island and the bridges were shut down and people needed to evacuate. And it was one of the largest rescue boat operations in the history of the world outside of Lake Dunkirk. Mm. World War II. And that's what Boatlift is about. And it's really a positive story about how anyone can really make a difference if they just step up. And it's a good, a feel good mm-hmm. message, but it's a great message because average everyday people, besides the police and fire, stepped up on that. Absolutely. And then the second documentary short it's called the twin towers movie it's a documentary short about the vigiano brothers and as i mentioned joe vigiano from the issue who died along with his firefighter brother and what happened was joe had been shot two different times in the line of duty and each time he came back he survived and we actually thought if anyone was surviving 9-11 yeah. we got him obviously and uh, Dick Wolf from Law and Order started filming him because he's like, this guy's a superhero. So they started a documentary about him while he was in ASU. And they had about not a lot of hours filming him and some of his friends about him and following him around in the SWAT trucks and whatnot. And then 9 11 happens. And he's like, what do I do with? don't really have enough for a movie, don't have enough, kind of have enough for a movie, but he really tied the middle of it. So how do you continue it? And he's like, I kind of have enough for a little mini series, not a lot. What do I do? So what he did was he went back and he re-interviewed the surviving partners. And then he re-interviewed the father who he interviewed before and after. And the father, John Vigiano Sr., was a Marine, was uh, one of the highest decorated firemen in FDNY history. 
and you kind of it won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. Hmm. I think it's on Netflix or YouTube free. What's it and called? The Twin Towers. Okay. And um, one of the last messages that uh, I live with every day is the first thing he said was, it made no sense to me that I lost both my sons at the same place at the same time. He said, but then it makes perfect sense because where else would they be? Wow. He said, the real... The real message is when you go to work, kiss your kids, kiss your wife goodbye, because you never know what could happen. And it's, it's a great message about you know, living life to the fullest. I still, uh, he passed away several years ago. He re was a retired fireman. He came back and dug the ground zero to find what was left of his sons. Wow. Um, he passed, and now both his grandkids, two of the three of Kathy's kids, are uh, police officers. Wow. It's still very much a, I, I think that's something that separates NYPD, probably FDNY too, from others around the country. It's still very much generational. Mm -hmm. You know, 9-11 may have curbed a little bit of that, but um, honestly and truthfully, it's still... Your daddy did it. Your brothers did it. Your aunts right. and uncles did it, and and I think that is one of the things that really sets that department, that culture, because they really are a culture mm -hmm. uh, apart from the rest of us. It's a family business. Yeah, and the rest of us are threatening our kids within an inch of their lives if they even consider <laughs> going into it. But up there, it's still very much. Rich, we cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to do this. He's retired. What am I talking about? He ain't got anything <laughs> else to do uh, except go. Uh, Hockey practice. Yeah, got to co coach his goalie ice hockey son, which is what Rich did. You know, that is one regret I have. You remember the one trip I was there was when the FDNY and the NYPD hockey game. And I was scheduled to fly out the day before. And Rich is like, you got to stay. We'll get you in. <laughs> I should have stayed. That is one of the biggest regrets I have. That they I still have stay. it. I need to they come up. They still have it here, usually in March or April. Mm -hmm. They either have it at Madison Square Garden. Last year they had it at the UBS Arena, which is the new arena where the Islanders play. That's busy here. <laughs> oh, I, he went down. To the basement. Well, if you can read that. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the fake article. <laughs> this is the, a real article. Oh, that's the real it's story. From stolen from Cop in New York, found in Ireland. Garda smashed bike theft plot. Shows a picture of that's not Rich Mac. No, it is not. <laughs> and it says Joy Sergeant Mac is getting his bike back. And the date of this was February 23rd, 2008, which is after everything. Yes. Uh, that's the, uh, this is the art. <laughs> so, I, I guess he was listening in. Thank you, Hudson. I can't, I want to come up and watch you play hockey. I miss being a goalie mom. I, I, I watched mine play from age six all the way up to college and I miss it. So I need to come up. So maybe I can come up when, that hockey game occurs with FDNY and NYPD and come see one of Hudson's games. Sure. 
Absolutely. That's, I'd like <laughs> to do that. So again, Rich, thank you. Um, you know, your friendship, your family, um, you know, me and my kids, we all love you. And uh, that you will always be a huge part of Under the Shield as well. As a matter of fact, Rich does some teaching with us. He came down and actually did something that very few people have ever done. And Tom witnessed it. And that was make me speechless when he brought me a piece of the Twin Towers. She really thought you were going to pull a good prank on her is what she was thinking. (laughs) Well, he's the reason we have implants in our class. And uh, I kind of figured. We'll we'll leave that joke for another day. (laughs) And so if your agency is is interested in our training and having Rich there, he does teach with us. We're going to get him down to Arizona a little bit more uh, as things pick back up after COVID and stuff. And uh, it's it's quite a treat to have Rich in the class for sure. And so we just. Uh, well, I like to keep it interesting. <laughs> you never know what he's going to pull out of his bag. That's right. And the last time it was a bunch of implants that he threw out in the into the audience to be their stress boobs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, but we hope you'll come back on again. We'll keep up with you and everything you've got going on. And like I said, we'll get you back down for training. Actually have you in studio. That would be fun. That would be fun. Yeah, he needs to come down and see the whole setup here at Under the Shield yeah. now. Absolutely. Can't wait. Yes, we'll make it happen. So to All our right. audience out there listening, again, this is our special edition um, of a 9-11 commemorative remembering New York and remembering everything that went on 21 years ago. Uh, We cannot let people forget this happened. Um, I I know it's easy for people to want to do that, but we need to continue to remember that they're struggling. Uh, All the first responders up there with uh, other things that are coming up now, cancers and everything else from that day. Uh, this, This event will never be over. And their families are still dealing with this. Absolutely. And so please continue to keep New York in your prayers over this and all of the first responders, the warriors, the heroes, Rich is a big part of my superheroes video. Um, I don't even think I got to show it to him when he was here because I don't think I played it in that supervisor class. No, you didn't. I need to send that to you, Rich. Um, but please, uh, as we remember 9-11, remember those that have made the ultimate sacrifice, not just that day but for all the years following that event and uh, keep their families in your prayers uh, at under the shield. If you're struggling with anything, it doesn't matter what it is because this is a lifestyle. Uh, there's nothing we don't deal with. Please reach out to us for help families. That includes you. You can contact us also. Our toll free number is 855-889-2348. If you hit extension one, we won't even have your phone number. The 855 number is what pops up on the phone for the stress coach that gets the call. And uh, if you want to talk to me, you can hit extension two. I think David Cohen in Alabama is three. Tom, you're four. Um, But, you know, if you want to talk to Rich, we'll get you in touch with Rich. We're going to get him down here and get him trained as a stress coach. He doesn't know it yet, but (laughs) he's going to go through that 40-hour certification (laughs) with us. Uh, Becky, our producer today, is... Uh, has a history in dispatch. She's also one of our stress coaches that if you're in dispatch, you want to talk to her, absolutely. Um, We can get you hooked up there. And if you call us and get disconnected, you have to call us back because we do not have your number, no way to reach you back. 
Exactly. And my cell number is 334-324-3570. My phone number is 480-861-6574. Becky, you want to give yours? <laughs> Go ahead. We'll we'll connect you with Becky if you're in dispatch. If you wanna you wanna talk to her, she'd be more than happy to. I don't I know. I don't know what her paranoia about giving her cell number out to the world is, but whatever. Um, but you know, we we want to make sure you understand. We appreciate all of you in the first responders, public safety, military, and families. We appreciate all the sacrifices that you make. That's why we're here, and we're here 24-7. Don't take vacation time. Um, you'll get one of us. We're not going to refer you out to other resources. We deal with it, and we have some pretty interesting ways of helping you with sleep, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, marital issues, whatever. Um, we can also help get you with a stress coach like Tom and his wife. Both are stress coaches. They work with our couples a lot of times. David Cohen and Teresa in Alabama also. But you have to reach out to us. And right. we promise anonymity. There are no notes, no records. We're not mandated reporters. We will never report you to your agency. We don't even know who you are or half the time where you're from. Uh, but please do reach out to us. This is also Suicide uh, Awareness Week. It is. And in that's months, right? that's something else that we are working diligently to try to help is Suicide prevention, our training is true prevention, not intervention. And so reach out to us. And again, Rich, thank you for taking out time and being a part of my life and part of Under the Shield. And we'll get you back down here for training. And so everybody have a great day. Remember September 11th, God bless you. God bless your families in this great nation that we live in. Love you, Rich. Love you too. Thank you guys so much. And thank all the first responders that came and supported us when we needed. I know that you have thousands of other officers from around the world that would help you out in a heartbeat if you need. Absolutely. Take care and come back and see us next week. All right. Thank you. See you later.